Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. We're a show that reports, rebels, and tells it just like it is. On this show, we center your concerns about rebuilding our nation and advancing the promise of equality. So join me as we tackle the most compelling issues of our times. On our show, History Matters, we examine the past as we think about the future. Now, on today's show, we're tackling issues of privacy complications of online spaces for women, the misogyny of online policing against women using their voices on online platforms. We're taking on the tech platforms and we're talking about how women are fighting back. And I couldn't be more pleased than to be joined by Danielle Citron and Jackie Rotman. Professor Citron is the Jefferson Scholars Foundation Shink Distinguished Professor in Law at the University of Virginia Law School, where she writes and teaches about privacy, free expression, and civil rights. Her latest book, and it is dynamic, make sure you get it in your hands, is The Fight for Privacy, Protecting Dignity, Identity, and Love in the Digital Age. And we recorded this episode just before the book came out. I was able to get my hands on it, and my goodness, what a powerful book it is. We're also joined by Jackie Rotman. She's the founder and CEO of the Center for Intimacy Justice, the CIJ, a nonprofit organization that's focused on creating equity in people's intimate lives. CIJ and Jackie Rotman are currently working to change policies, attack platforms to allow health ads to be more gender equitable and allow more ads directed at women and people with vulvas. I couldn't be more pleased than to bring this episode to our listeners. So I want to start off, Danielle, with talking about not just your first book, uh, but the book that led to this book, because your scholarship has really set the stage for how we understand privacy, how we understand misogyny, uh, and how it interferes with privacy. You wrote a book called Hate Crimes in Cyberspace, and it has been influential in changing the way that law enforcement and legislators addressed cyber harassment. So could you set the stage for letting us know what cyber harassment actually happens to be and why did you write that book? Thank you so much for for having me. This is a joy to talk to you both. Um, So cyber harassment is a It's the targeting of a specific individual with a course of conduct that is not just once or twice, but persistently in ways that cause severe emotional distress and often the fear of physical harm. And it's usually a perfect storm of rape and rape and death threats, doxing or the revelation of personal information and often including nude imagery. Uh, It includes defamation. And so, so um, reputation harming lies, and then sometimes technical attacks, so um, distributed denial of service attacks, which quite literally shove people offline, or false reporting of people's profiles as violations of terms of service, right, to remove them from, so to shut down or to mute them. And it's usually all of those things together. So, so Danielle, that would seem so obviously wrong, (laughs) so (laughs) obviously terrible, Then it raises the question, why would you even need to write the book? And why was law enforcement? I mean, because you helped to change laws. So so what was going on? Why is it that (laughs) sort of exploiting people's images, non-consensual pornography, you know, help us to understand why that has actually been something that it was necessary to get law enforcement involved in and that it was necessary to get legislators involved in because that would seem like basic human decency. You don't do those things. Absolutely. Right. You would assume that, that the response would be, this is a serious problem. I'm going to help you. And, and we're going to figure out how law can accommodate and, and tackle these problems, but victims would go to law enforcement and often the response, it had it sort of played in a number of ways, but and in many ways, similar to the way that we trivialize workplace harassment and domestic violence in the 70s and 80s, which were the first things you blame the victim. You're like, you shouldn't have shared that nude photo. Why'd you piss off your ex? 
you know, what did you do wrong? That's mm-hmm. the, that's why did right, you the, make the spaghetti with meatballs? Don't you know that totally. the spaghetti should not be made with meatballs, right? It should be warm at perfect temperature, right? Exactly. Like, the spaghetti was too cold and you know, that would push some buttons. So of course, of course it's your fault, right? You, you weren't the proper perfect housekeeper, right? In this, you know, to your spouse, the right. same responses that, that so often abused partners face was the same. I mean, stunningly the same kinds of responses that victims heard. And, and this would be in the late, um, like 2008, I started and seven, I started working on these issues and, and individuals would come to me and usually they were women, women of color, um, LGBTQ individuals. And they would say, I went to law enforcement. And the response was like, it's your fault, right? Mm-hmm. You clearly did something wrong. And then the next response was sort of connected to it would be to trivialize it, which would to say, okay, it's your fault and it's no big deal. Turn your computer off. It's like boys being boys. You can't get so exercised. And the thing was, so often law enforcement would say, ignore it. As if you could ignore. And how in the world are you going to ignore nude images of yourself online that people could Google and then find you everywhere? How do you ignore that? Right. No, the, 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 the idea that Google is our CV was like completely lost on on folks in the early, you know, I would say like 2008, 9, 10, the, the response that you could turn your computer off as if it was like a different place in space mm-hmm. and as if you could just like ignore it. Right. Like ignore, don't look at email, right? Like, right. like don't no, communicate that's right. with the office, right? Like just don't use And don't internet. use social media. It was almost like, you know, it's your fault. So, so just get off LinkedIn, get off Facebook, get off Twitter. You know, why make such a big deal about it? Um, and often victims would then say, but I have people calling me on my cell phone because my ex is, is impersonating me and saying that I'm interested in sex and available for sex. And they're coming to my house and banging on my door. I'm scared out of my mind. Mm-hmm. And still law enforcement would say, but at least he didn't, you know, post your home address. You're like, you, 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 every kind of response was one more baffling, you know, than the next. And so in many ways, so much of the work at the time was educative. Mm-hmm. right was to bring the harm to the fore to have people see the harm and the fullness of the harm to see how often it was sexually demeaning and sexually threatening and also racially demeaning and racially threatening that it was this that it followed a very similar playbook so not only were the victims often female or lgbtq but also it was sexually demeaning and sexually threatening and at the same time much worse if you had browner skin Right. That is, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm saying? like the the Japanese American woman who I advised from Hawaii, like it was you Asian slut. Right. And the yeah. black woman who I advised, it was, you know, the most vile racial epithets included with her home address, included with her nude photo that her ex revealed online. Right. Um, along with identifying details of where she worked so that it was this vile, perfect storm in ways that were it was terrifying for victims. You know, I want to come back to to this because there's so much that I got from that. One, the sort of arcane framing and response, the sort of idea that this wasn't physical, it's just in this other space, so you don't have to worry about this other space when this other space is a central part of people's lives. And then also pulling from the old playbook, too, of the response from the 1970s and 80s, which is that you did this to yourself. Can't you just modify your own behavior? Why are you triggering men to respond this way to you? Um, So I want to come back to that and also add to it the journey that it takes to do the work, because it was a journey for you to do this work with law enforcement and legislators. But I'm also curious what it was in terms of a journey amongst people in legal education to get them to understand the importance of this too. So Jackie, you've also been on this journey with helping people to understand the importance of intimacy in the public space and that it should not be something that is demeaned or rejected, but it comes from another space. So what you've been trying to do is to make sure that women can have conversations online and learn about intimacy without 
uh, your posts and the posts of other women being taken down, which is absolutely ironic because we've just heard about the fight that Danielle <laughs> had to, to wage, right? Like she really was like this one woman battle team, <laughs> battle force, right? Like this is horrible stuff. This is abuse online. These are rape threats, death threats, whatnot. You see non-consensual images being shared of women's nude bodies and so forth. And the response is, well, too bad. <laughs> Just don't turn on the internet. <laughs> Just don't use social media. On the other hand, you've tried to educate women and people about their bodies, but you've received a different response. What's that response been, Jackie? Yeah, and thank you so much for having me as well. It's amazing to be in dialogue with both of you. So in 2017 or in 2018, those two years, I started learning about this amazing field of women who are using entrepreneurship and technology to create businesses to address issues in our intimate lives. They were creating menopause products or pelvic pain products, but also sexual wellness products. And it was such an inspiring field. And when I talked with them, every single one of these women founders said that they couldn't advertise on Facebook or Instagram. Their ads are being taken down. They were also- oh, oh, Jackie, yeah. Jackie, Jackie, let me just pause right there. <laughs> you just said that women who wanted to share information about women's bodies, biological information, information that's helpful for women's health, that that information was being taken down. Am I right? Yeah. Is that what you said? Exactly. And they're, for half of them, their entire accounts were shut down. So they would be blocked for eight months or nine months, or sometimes indefinitely, they couldn't access the most important channel for going to business. Um, and it was already so brave of them to be creating businesses in a time where, you know, the Me Too movement was just starting and they were saying, okay, we deserve even more than, uh, uh, and women not experiencing violence, we deserve joy and health and pleasure. So they were doing a service to all of us um, by trying to help, but the business sector was putting so many barriers in their way. I, I, you know, I'm wondering, how do we reconcile these two stories, right? <laughs> how does one reconcile on one hand, Danielle telling us a story of a decade ago or just a little bit more. And I was there with her. I saw what she was seeking to do. And on the other hand, the story that you're telling us today, I would love commentary from either of you. I mean, I'll start with you, Danielle. How does one reconcile this space at all? Right. It's, it's the ultimate power move, right? We're going to coerce women's expression, you know, force the post their nude photos online to humiliate and shame them and on somebody else's decision, right? So, so we're in control of your sexual identity. We're going to determine it. And if you want to freely express yourself sexually and enjoy it, right, and be incredibly helpful to other women, we're going to say, no, no, no. Like it's only on our terms and we decide that's not appropriate, right? So it is ultimately the control over women's expression and voices that's at the heart of this and power over it, which golly knows, you know, we know why it's, you know, the heart of it is misogyny, bigotry, invidious attitudes, right? That, that seems to me so obvious that this is what's happening. And it's so depressing though, of course, you know, Jackie and your work at the same time. Yeah. Definitely. And it has so much to do with agency as well. It's society wants women's sexuality and women's bodies to be controlled by other people. We've normalized rape and sexual violence. But when women actually say, okay, we can take ownership over our own sexuality, we can have our own narratives, we can create businesses, then it's seen as inappropriate. So the reason that Facebook was misclassifying uh, women's health and blocking it is that they called it adult products. It was seen as sexual. And at the same time, Hymns and Roe were, were started in 2017. They were raising money to solve erectile dysfunction and raising at huge valuations and ads were allowed uh, that said, get hard or get your money back. That was fine. Wait, no, so, no. So, so, <laughs> so get running. hard and get your money or get your money back. Okay. <laughs> Stays <Yeah>. up <laughs> and evaluations go up and money mm -hmm. is raised. But women who were entrepreneurs, small business owners who were trying to enter spaces about women's bodies, women's pleasure, know your health, shut down. Mm -hmm. 
Exactly. So you founded the Center for Intimacy Justice. You're the CEO of CIJ, and it's a nonprofit organization that's focused on creating equity in people's intimate lives. Is that why you founded this organization? It's the first issue area we've taken on, but I started it because it was a time where I think I was waking up in my mid-20s to seeing so many things that were wrong in our sexual culture on the whole uh, the whole spectrum of sexual violence and trauma and trauma not being understood, but also wanting to have a, also a sex-positive part of my identity that said, like, women also we also are experiencing inequity when it comes to pleasure. And there's so many different, yeah, I see you nodding. Um, yeah, go ahead. I, there's I'm so nodding. many. Yes, <laughs> I want you to be able to finish, but I'm nodding because yeah. we're in the wake of Dobbs and I'm nodding mm-hmm. because in the wake of a Supreme Court decision that cites lawyers from the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries that wrote about and seemingly supported the notion of coverture, which allowed for Mm -hmm. permissible marital rape, right? We're talking Mm -hmm. about a legal culture embedded Mm -hmm. in American law have been principles that men can rape women without consequence. Mm -hmm. You know, we're talking about a history that up until the 1990s, right? The late 1980s, early 1990s, that men could permissibly rape their wives and not be criminally punished for it because of laws that shielded them from that because the notion was that women are subsumed within their husband's identity and they have no independent legal identity and looking explicitly at those legal records the notion was that a man can't rape himself which basically suggests that a woman is really insignificant and so when i hear you and i'm you know nodding and you can see me our audience can't but um that yes this this notion of women having pleasure of women being able to define and determine their own um sexual journeys um, is something that has been non-existent, a kind of like avoided in law. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, we have in law understood men and their mm-hmm. sexual journeys, but not that for women. Exactly. There's this amazing article, Law Journal article, that's one of my favorites that really inspired a lot of our values at Center for Intimacy Justice. It was by Catherine Frankie in I think 2001 or 2007. And she talks about how feminist law has done so much to say, to talk about a woman's right to say no to sex, but where are we, she says, on the conditions of women being allowed to say, being able to say yes. And she talks about how so many tort complaints around sexual dysfunction, men file them at, you know, twice the rates of men, but women's sexual function is just seen as insignificant. And yeah, yeah. So, so I want to bring Danielle back on that point. I mean, we saw that, see that in, in tort law, its origins, the, you know, laws of, that related to loss of consortium, you know, that men could sue a third party who injured, you know, their wives because yes. their wives would be sexually unavailable to them and unavailable to cook and clean for them so men could actually reclaim off of injury to their wives because they somehow are put out by that. So, Danielle, you know, again, this this history, how do we how do we understand the arc of this history in American law and what's been the journey to dismantle it for you? So part of the, yeah, no, no, no. Just like thinking about all the avenues that are often unavailable um, to victims of, of intimate privacy violations and stalking and harassment. And in part, you know, some of the story is a practical story, which is it's really expensive to sue. And so even if law would recognize, you know, the privacy toward a public disclosure of private fact or an intentional infliction of emotional distress, it's, it's theoretically possible to sue, but practically difficult. And we don't have any deep pockets thanks to Section 230 of the Decency Act, which means you can't sue the platform. They're immune, shielded from legal responsibility. So um, uh, for user-generated content, 
Uh, and the the theory was that you're supposed to be a good Samaritan. And, and, and if you're a good Samaritan, then you've earned that legal shield. But courts have widely interpreted it so that even sites that solicit, encourage, make money off of non-consensual pornography and other intimate privacy violations and stalking, they enjoy immunity from responsibility and continue to enjoy immunity from responsibility. So in many ways, like tort law doesn't operate because it's sort of out of reach, practically speaking. Um, and the one really sort of, uh, I find, I wish that the privacy torts could have taken off um, uh, and, and provided a vehicle for redress. Uh, Jessica Lake has written this amazing book about the early uses of the privacy tort. And there were women trying to claim the plaintiffs. She went through all the litigation um, of cases of, from the 1890s and early 1900s, that right to privacy, that Warren and um, Brandeis write about. They tried to reclaim their identities and sexual expression on their own terms. Um, and often the courts would reframe it and, and sort of in this very paternalistic way, describe what they were suing for, that they need to be coddled, right? Uh, rather than the way they described it in their own complaints. That is, they wanted to determine for themselves how their sexual identity and, and their faces were so portrayed. So in a way, Warren and Brandeis, that those torts have been unavailable, practically speaking, because you, you don't have a deep pocket, you can't sue. The torts have been sort of ossified and narrowed to the uh, um, to four torts that often just don't meet the moment. And you can't sue because you don't have money. Right. And so what the work that Marianne Franks and I did at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative was an effort to at least have criminal law come into the space. Right. And to change the laws around the country um, with regard to the non-consensual posting of intimate images. And I've been working on trying to widen the lens. That is for us to see a, a comprehensively. That is video voyeurism, upskirt photos, down blouse photos sextortion, deep fake sex videos, non-consensual porn as part of one problem, that it's all intimate privacy that's at issue, the denial of autonomy, as Jackie was saying, the the, the undermining of, of self-esteem and social esteem or dignity, and the inability to have love relationships after your trust has been betrayed. And so we have some, we have a lot of work to do, you know, <laughs> on the but lawmaker front, done. you said like, you know, how is that going, right? You said like, how has law been? <laughs> Right. I'm sorry, that was a long answer, but no, it was it was it was a needed answer because that's also a bit of a journey, and and I think it's important that people understand that you you're a MacArthur Genius Award e fellow, right? You do such brilliant, important work, and yet it has been a journey to educate lawmakers. Um, your name came up um, at the White House recently when I was there with the Vice President, as she said that she learned so much from you uh, when you were helping her when she was the state's attorney general here in California. That's been real work. And I think it's important that people understand that, that these have not been easy journeys. And, and so Jackie, I want to hear from you. What has it been like since you've started CIJ? What have been the efforts made by your organization to make changes um, in this space? We heard that Danielle had to really try to tackle this through the criminal law and made advancements. You know, what's been the strategy that you've taken up to expand these spaces for women? Yeah, the first thing we did was we put information to the problem and made it visible. So we did a study that we released in January of this year, 2022, that talked about how of 60 companies we surveyed on this issue, you know, 58 of which were led by women, two were led by non-binary people, all in women's health. Every single one of them, 100% had had an ad taken down for the areas of health we talked about. Every single one. And 50% of them had their accounts suspended. So I was some. I was actually surprised to see how much happened just from putting that information out because it was something that we all knew in the women's health entrepreneurial space, but people in D.C. and policy didn't know. So we published that report. It was in the New York Times and 70 other media outlets. And we were so excited to see their response. Senator Patty Murray took on the issue with the U.S. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Hillary Clinton tweeted about it, which brought visibility to it, but also was uh, a source of hope and inspiration because so many people that were 
not seen on this issue for the past 10, 15 plus years felt seen. And it, it mattered emotionally for people in this space. And then our next step, we've been researching for about two and a half years working with the Harvard Cyber Law Clinic and an amazing lawyer they named there named Jessica Field. We've been looking at what are the legal paths to creating change on this. So we've looked at shareholder activism, lawsuits, uh, Federal Trade Commission complaints, and it seems that Facebook is not going to create changes based on the media and even congressional pressure alone, which is, I really believe if we got a New York Times article on this, they just fix it because they make right. more money. And, and just a shout out for your article, vaginas deserve giant ads too. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah. We have the um, their gender editor at the New York Times, Alicia Whitmire, is genius. Like she, I spoke with I've spoken with so many other people that she's just, she picked the title, but it got a lot of clicks. Um, that was for a 2019 article. And then this, there was another one this year that was written by um, Valeria Safranova. But, um, but thanks for the shout out on that title. It was a really smart choice of hers. But um, we're now figuring out, okay, how can we get the government to enforce change? Because Facebook isn't doing it alone. Now we're sending our report to attorneys general and the FTC and, and asking them to create change. Jackie, but it's been, we, have, yeah. we have work together to do. Like second 230 is we yeah. have work. I mean, bless you, Michelle, for putting us together. Like this was fated so or excited. meant to be. Yay! This is, why, this is why Michelle is a genius. She's one of the most talented She's humans incredible. I've ever met in my entire life. Okay. That's amazing. So thank you for putting us together because Jackie, we have some work to I'm do. I'm so excited. Right? I'm because so excited the, with you. this is precisely the sort of the kinds of problems that we have thanks to Section 230. Yeah. That, that it's that's almost impossible for state AGs, and I love them, right? Oh, uh, wow. Michelle knows, like having worked with AG Harris, you know, then yeah. AG Harris and and studying state AGs as privacy policymakers, they can't do anything thanks hard. to Section 230. So oh, I'm so Ugh. excited. We've just I've just in my head cooked up work we're gonna do together. I'm, I'm so that. excited. I, I love that. I feel such connection well, to you. You know, and I think about the urgency of both the work that you do, and and I want to turn to your your new your forthcoming book Danielle. But when I think about this it's in so the way of it's so good, right? So good, amazing. Um, in the wake of the dismantling of reproductive privacy, reproductive autonomy, equality, um, how will women come to know, girls come to know about their bodies? It's, it's actually really important when you have mm -hmm. school districts now banning sex education or abstinence only education, young boys can easily find pornography online children can generally but i hear from so many parents about their nine ten year old sons um looking at the most harmful of pornographic um images and you hear from young women who have been injured in sex because their partners expect them to do the kinds of things that they've been looking at for the last five or six years since they were little boys of the sort of gymnastics of women this kind of inconsistent notion you know inconsistent reality <laughs> that's found in in uh pornography that that caters um to to men and you know without girls having a sense of well you know what's the biology of their bodies what does um healthy pleasure seem like look like um, without understanding the ge geography of their bodies. And you just really see such a kind of grave inconsistency that folds from all of this. Yeah. Yeah, we need, it's amazing the kinds of education that we need versus the kinds of education that we can provide, right? That in this environment, you know, in my, in my book, I talk about, you know, we need to educate, and I'm echoing some of Martha Nussbaum's ideas that we need to educate young boys about, um, um, understanding themselves as, and power is about compassion, right? Rather than dominance. That is often this, these narratives of dominance so pervade lots of just peer education of boys. But what we're being told now in the wake of Dobbs is that any conversations about women's sexual autonomy is kind of off the table. We can't talk about terminating pregnancies, right? And as you said so well, right, where we're going to figure out you know, who we are as sexual beings, like Jackie's work tells us that women's 
speech about their own like autonomy enhancing speech about whether it's cool products for women in menopause, right? Like those are being taken offline. Yet what, as Michelle reminds us, what remains is porn, right? That's right. And, right. And, and, and often on a lot of these adult sites, it's not consensual pornography, right? And it's, and it's of rapes of, of young people, of, of, of right? young people, right? Of, of yes. young boys and, and young girls. Yes. And there's yes. so much that's implicated within the context of this that's not associated. Yeah. So oftentimes sort of looked at, well, these are these kind of fringe women's issues that only a small percentage of, of women are concerned about those those deep left feminists. Otherwise, everybody is satisfied with these spaces. And that's just simply not uh, correct. And there has been a real journey to try to um, educate and inform lawmakers. And this implicates the First Amendment. I mean, there are other ways in yes. which law should come to bear in these spaces when there is the banning of speech and it's being directed selectively at women, when there are people who are disempowered from being able to speak freely, and they happen to be people who come from vulnerable communities because they're people of color, they're LGBTQ, there's so much of that is wrapped into this. So I'm wondering then, Danielle, what the fight for privacy, protecting dignity, identity, and love in the digital age, and it will be released in October, so um, the first thing, can people pre-order now? I'm sure they yes, can. Yes, they can. Yeah, so at WW Norton and Penguin UK, it's available for pre-order. It's available for pre-order at Amazon and a lot of independent booksellers. So it's, it's going to be soon out in the world, but October 4th, and you can totally pre-order. So I hope people yeah. do. They will. <laughs> They bet all of our listeners, <laughs> <laughs> all of our all of our listeners right now, uh, check out uh, Danielle's book. Um, you can order it. You can pre-order it right now. Um, so, all right. So, tell us about. We understand the urgency of this book. I mean, the timing. I mean, you're a genius. You're you're, <laughs> you're so prescient, right? So, the fight for privacy. You know, protecting dignity and identity and love and all of that comes together. I understand it. Jackie understands and I think many people do, but you're you're trying to educate people about, you know, why privacy and love and intimacy and identity all come together and collectively need to be protected. Tell us a bit about that. Right. So the privacy around our our bodies, our health, our minds, our relationships, our, you know, sexual orientation, sexual activity, our our gender, you know, that kind of privacy is not only a foundational value, but it's a foundational value, not for us alone, but for us together. So that, that the kind of privacy and confidentiality and the way that we manage the boundaries around our lives involves, of course, individuals sharing experiences with each other and being discreet and trusting each other to keep it confidential. It also involves companies, companies that enable our sexual expression, our love, our communications, our dating right? Our, all the ways that we use health apps, that all of that intimate information, I want us to engage in all that expression. I am no technophobe, right? I wanted, you know, my kids to use dating apps to, 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 to get all that we can uh, that's available to us. But the problem is, is that the commitment from companies to individuals is not one of a compact of privacy. It's almost anti-privacy, as my colleague Woody Hartzog would describe terms of service, you know, privacy policies. Um, and we lack, so we, we just lack protection, both for companies and our, our relationships with them. I want that relationship to be protected so that we can get the most out of their tools and services, right? But right now it's not. <clears throat> our information can be hand over fist collected, hand over fist used and shared and sold, right? To data brokers. And then so provided to law enforcement. So, you know, my book was pre-dubs, right? It, it, it went to the printer, has gone to the printer pre-dubs. Oh, wow. And you know what I mean? Like, so I talk about- That's all how the ways, prescient she is. <laughs> but all the ways, right, that our intimate information can be weaponized against us, not only by individuals, privacy invaders who torment us, right? And make it impossible to work and to play and to love by posting our nude photos online or secretly taping us in the bedroom, not only by companies who betray our and aren't loyal to us by hocking our intimate information, right? To uh, data brokers 
right? And then in turn to employers, life insurers, but also then to governments, right? And governments that in many countries, my book is the global story story of of intimate privacy. So governments who want to silence dissenters, right? Use that information to blackmail and extort because they got their grinder information, right? But now governments who are going to jail women for exercising their reproductive freedom, right? And so the implications of the ways in which data handmaidens, like the pass off of all of our intimate information impairs is so important. So I argue in the book that it we should understand intimate privacy as a fundamental right and crucially as a civil right. That is a right that each and every one of us enjoys as well as structural pr- protection against structural discrimination. Because we know we have, there's no doubt about it, that that women, that people of color, that LGBTQ individuals, it's going to be their intimate information is most costly to them. It's their bodies that are stigmatized, right? Um, and viewed as diseased and 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 structurally unprotected. And so we need both, right? Everyone, I think everyone deserves a right to intimate privacy, right? To love, to develop ourselves, to be our authentic, you know, who we are. But we have we need special protection for the most vulnerable. Because that's who it's most, you know, the loss of privacy most, you know, bites. So what's the likelihood? So much of the work that we do is aspirational, right? We, we, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and yet it's urgent because you tell really urgent stories in the book. And I'm wondering in the wake of Dobbs, you wrote the book pre-Dobbs. I'm wondering in the wake of Dobbs, just... Um, what your sense is in terms of that arc of justice and reaching that space that uh, we're all hoping to get to. Yeah. So, so there has been, I know I, 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 I'm not a Pollyanna, I promise, you know, you know, I'm like ebullient person, (laughs) but, but, but I know that I, what we're up against, right. But what has been encouraging is that since Dobbs dropped, I've been working with Senator Warren's office and representative Sarah Jacobs office to protect, to prevent the sale of of health and location data and health, not HIPAA protected health, health meaning period tracking apps and your cell phone, uh, your Fitbit, you know, all the information that uh, about our bodies and our reproductive sort of health and choices and, and conditions that is unprotected by HIPAA. So much of it is unprotected by HIPAA because it's collected by, you know, private companies and by, you know, individuals. So providing it to private companies and data brokers. And so, I, I guess what I would say is I know I should say that all legislation is doomed to pay, right? That we should be gloomy, but but perhaps not, right? That is, you know, we're seeing efforts on the Hill, Senate and House side to protect the sale of intimate information. And I think we also need to pass the um the Fourth Amendment is not for sale act, which means you need a warrant. You're gonna get this really intimate information. You can't buy it right now. It can be easily bought by data brokers, right? And they sell the government. Law enforcement has the biggest contracts with data brokers. They just buy it now, right? I mean, so we, we see that with mugshots, right? Something that yes. otherwise people would yes. have had to go to the county clerk's office in that county, know the name to search, or just spend you know all day long searching, uh, and then find it and have to go through doing all that work. But um, those, those mugshots, you know, easily online, and there's some people that might, you know, say, well, this is what you deserve. But that was never the purpose of a mugshot. I mean, we see so much in terms of what is data online that was actually never intended for those purposes, including within the criminal justice space, or what some people might call an injustice space. So I mean, I don't think that it's necessarily Pollyanna-ish, Danielle, at all, because there must be a way in which we envision um, the brighter day. Right. I mean, I think that that is what's key to the work that both of you do. Right. It is envisioning what should be the standard, what should be the brighter day. How do we conceive that and how do we give tools to others to be able to help get us there? Yeah. Like at the ready. Right. I guess that's what what we're doing. Right. Is to have these tools at the ready. So when they're when when lawmakers finally see it. 
right? And more broadly, not just Senator Warren and not just, you know, Representative Sarah Jacobs, but like all together that they're there, that, that we can seize upon those tools, right? Yes. And they understand that there's something at stake in this for them too. I mean, that's one of the challenges perhaps sometimes in these spaces when we think about them and the conversation that we've had, there's been a lot of male dominance in these spaces. That's just simply what it is, right? I mean, that's empirically what, what it's been in our legislative spaces, right? We're breaking records now, but we still don't have the federal representation of women of other countries. We rank somewhere like 68th, between 68th and 78th in the world in terms of federal representation of women, that is women who are elected to the highest offices in Congress compared with um, other countries around the world. We see that with our judiciary um, as well. And so trying to convey as you both have in your work, in your research, to understand what's been embedded in so many of these spaces have been harms or harmful to vulnerable people and especially women that's been its own journey. And then of course, it's been um, on you when it shouldn't necessarily have to be on you to help then chart. <laughs> this is where law could go if law were to be uh, more um, uh, empathetic, uh, if law were to be more equal, if law were to be more just in these spaces, right? This is what it would look like. And so, Jackie, um, I'm getting to that point where I begin to ask about a silver lining, right? What do we see sort of going forward? But before we get there, Jackie, I want to ask you then just what's been sort of next on your agenda, right? You know, sort of what does the, is it a legislative approach that you're looking to take with what it is that you're trying to do, expanding the horizon for women to be able to be online affirmatively about women's bodies? What's the approach? We've already brought so many new people and eyes to this issue from releasing information about the problem and what's happening in over 70 media outlets which uh, led to Senator Patty Murray and the Senate Help Committee taking action and led to tweets from politicians like Hillary Clinton. So we've already elevated this issue in the public that had previously been unseen by so many. With, you know, with the next steps, our hope is that Facebook will create change from all of that pressure and this information being compiled in one place. But if that's not enough to lead them to change, then we have other tools in our toolkit. We would likely file a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission and ask the U.S. Federal Trade Commission to take action on this issue because it is so crucial for so many people who are impacted. And we also can take other legal avenues. We've begun to educate state attorneys general so that they can be equipped with our research and our investigatory tools we give them about this problem, and they can also take action at the state level legally. So there are a lot of different avenues to create change in addition to communications campaigns that can bring together different influencers and different voices and individuals to to call on change at these companies and encourage the government uh, to help uh, government agencies to help us. We're also super passionate about continuing cultural change. So many of these tech policies, while algorithmic, are also embedded and in relationship with cultural conversations and what people believe and understand and know. So we're really passionate about inviting and developing and contributing to creating cultural conversations about topics like women's pleasure or uh, well-being in intimacy, justice, and uh, creating dialogue and information to move the cultural conversation because changing tech uh, policies and tech practices that have impact on billions of people is one critical element of our work, but another is changing minds and hearts in the public spheres and in in conversation. And so we're continuing to really grow out our culture change work very intentionally, strategically, and with a lot of passion as one of the next areas of our work. Yeah, I think that that's critically important because when Danielle began doing this work, I mean, she was really the person doing the work and really bringing attention to these issues and spaces that um, where, where it was inconceivable to take the approaches that she was arguing for. And she prevailed. And I think that there's a broader message for so many who are listening in 
um, whether they happen to be academics, activists, uh, legislators, legislative uh, aides, and that is to not give up and to not stop. And that this is work that is a journey. It's not necessarily instantaneous. Sometimes it's more of a marathon than a sprint. Um, but it also says something too about doing smart work as well. And I think that Danielle's approach to her work and Jackie, your approach to your work has just been so robust and so smart. And I compliment you both on that. Thank you so much. Back at you, friend. Yeah. So we reached this point in our show where I ask about a silver lining. And I think that there are so many to be found with your work. I think there's so many synergies between the work that you both do. Uh, I, I think that there's so much to be said about the human rights agenda that is bound and found within your work. And with this new book too, Danielle, I love the articulation of that, which is so powerful. So in light of Dobbs, uh, in light of the times that we're in and the encroachments on so many uh, rights that people hold dear, that our constitution establishes and that we thought were settled, what's the silver lining for folks? And I'll start with you, Jackie. Well, one thing that I've thought about with the silver lining in the ad equality space is we're building all this organizing power of hundreds of, uh, of, of organizations and businesses that even if we solve this issue, we have all this connected, all these systems for connectivity that can then continue to the next fights. And after we uh, had this big media release of this issue in January, you know, we could have then like filed an FTC complaint in March and we didn't, we spent months creating, investing in like softwares to create databases of hundreds of groups so that when we did do our next big major issue, we can easily organize with hundreds of groups. And we, it was very like not sexy, but that organizing power we then are connected where we can work together. We can have funding uh, systems of being able to solve other problems. And the relationships that have been built in this space, you know, a lot of the people I work with, I want to work with 20 years from now where we can do so much more together. And one other piece I'll say is that I, there's this uh, woman, Polly Rodriguez, who's a close partner and advisor to Center for Intimacy Justice. She started Unbound, but she talks about competitors where you're working directly with your direct competitors because her quote is, our biggest competitor isn't each other. Our biggest competitor is the systemic issues that are holding us all back and being able to work together with our competitors and look forward and, and partner is what inspires me because at the end of the day, this our our work is about power. It's about how do you build power to overthrow a system where a more powerful company or institution is holding us back. And we're building power, you know, through organizing together. And, and I'm it will enable many more fights as well. Jackie, thank you so much for that because power is critically important. Um, and, and we could have a whole additional <laughs> episode on just thinking about power and association with the work that you both do and how critically mm -hmm. important it is, right? Danielle, the, the silver lining um, that you see coming forward um, in light of the fight for privacy. So it's going to resonate so much with what Jackie said, and I'm going to recruit Jackie to include me in those networks of joint fight together. Yes. Um, and you know what I what we've seen at the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is is we're joining together with Epic, the Electronic Privacy Information Center, like ways um, to bring together our forces. And um, I think Jackie too that we should partner um, CSRI and. Um, Center for for um, Intimate Justice, and we can bring it to companies. So I've been working with closely with, um, you know, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, Bumble, you know, like um, yeah, now TikTok. And I think that we should bring all of our forces together to yeah. pressure them because yeah. it sounds to me that in this post-Obs moment, right, with you all these Silicon Valley companies saying, we want to support our employees, we'll fly you to places, right? Like all this sort of, what do they say? Um, it's gesturing, 
right? To solidarity and equality. Well, let's make them pay for it. Let's, let's, them, let's them be serious. Yeah. Right? I mean, this, and you've been so effective thing, at working with them. It seems like, yeah, well, whereas, like they won't even take our us. calls. Well, Thank I you. got you because <laughs> we got to do this together. Yes. Um, the ad equality piece is, is so profound, right? And it's so obscured because your studying is so important to bring visibility to it. And it's almost impossible otherwise, right? Like these are opaque systems, right? Mm -hmm. So unless you have the markup, you know, you have like data journalists, like on your case with you, no one knows, right? And so, you know, let's, let's think of ways to bring this issue, not only to lawmakers, but also to companies and press that change together. Mm, Well, this has been my pleasure to be with both of you. Professor Danielle Citron and Jackie Rotman. Thank you so much for joining us for this very important uh, episode of On the Issues. It was so meaningful to to be with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Goodwin. You're a genius at connecting and bringing this conversation together. Thank you. Thank you so much. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. I want to thank each of you for tuning in for the full story and engaging with us. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode, where you know we'll be reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. For more information about what we discussed today, head to MsMagazine.com and be sure to subscribe. And if you believe, as we do, that women's voices matter, that equality for all persons can not be delayed, and that rebuilding America and being unbought and unbossed and reclaiming our time are important, then be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever it is that you receive your podcast. We are ad-free and reader-supported. Help us reach new listeners by bringing this hard-hitting content in which you've come to expect and rely upon by subscribing. Let us know what you think about our show and please support independent feminist media. Look for us at MsMagazine.com for new content and special episode updates. And if you want to reach us, please do so. Email us at ontheissues@mysmagazine.com. MsMagazine.com. We do read our mail. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Michelle Goodwin and Kathy Spiller are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, and also Allison Whelan. Our social media content producer is Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez and Natalie Holland, and music by Chris J. Lee.